This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. I want to talk to you now about a special series, a five-part series actually for Global News that the team behind the John McComb Show has been working on for this week. They're taking a look at some of the biggest cases of wrongful conviction across the country. It's called Canada's Wrongfully Convicted. Many of the cases that we are going to be hearing about involve people who have spent years, decades even, in prison. Now, part one is airing today, and it looks at some of the reasons behind these wrongful convictions. And have a listen to the series narrated by our John McComb. Imagine being the victim of such a deep miscarriage of justice. You spend years or even decades of your life behind bars for a crime you did not commit. In Canada, there are at least 70 recorded instances of wrongful convictions. But how many have yet to be revealed? Perhaps the most notorious Canadian case involved David Milgard, the Saskatchewan man who languished in prison for 23 years, almost a quarter of a century, for the 1969 murder of nurse Gail Miller. I like the feeling today where uh, truth is, is beginning to come out. That was Milgard upon his release from prison in 1992, after his conviction was quashed. In this first episode of Canada's Wrongfully Convicted, we explore how and why a person comes to be accused and convicted of a crime they did not commit. One of the most common factors is eyewitness misidentification where a mistake's been made about who the actual suspect is, and those errors occur all the time. That's Catherine Campbell. She's an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. She's also director of the student-run Innocence Ottawa Project, a group dedicated to investigating wrongful convictions. Campbell has spent much of her career examining how and why Canadians are wrongfully accused. She says there are many factors that can lead to a person being accused and convicted of a crime in which they had no involvement. There's also the problem of jailhouse informants who claim to have heard a confession or an admission in jail and are willing to testify to that effect, usually for a benefit. I think a huge issue, too, is tunnel vision, where the police, and the police are the first people who kind of sow the seeds for wrongful conviction. And they're the first people who, you know, make decisions about collecting evidence and who to question and how to proceed. And there, sometimes they will have an idea, sometimes, uh, I guess, a misconception possibly about who the actual suspect is prior to having all the appropriate knowledge behind them before making that decision. And that sometimes can, that sort of tunnel vision can lead other people down the road to follow the same errors. Let's take a closer look at the concept of faulty eyewitness testimony. According to the nonprofit organization, The Innocence Project, it was a contributing factor in about 70% of convictions overturned through DNA testing. Well, the problem is, too, is that there's really no link between how confident you are in your testimony, let's say if you're an eyewitness, and how accurate you are. And I don't think the average layperson in a jury knows that. So you could have somebody on the stand saying, I am absolutely 100% sure it was that person. And hearing that, you think, wow, and it's, you know, a credible-looking witness, a young person maybe, or somebody who's socially acceptable, let's say, and, and you may be fooled by that, when in fact, 
they could be completely wrong. I always believed that you couldn't have evidence for something that didn't happen. But I've come to understand by looking at my case and other cases that evidence is merely something that can be used to infer that you're guilty. That's Robert Baltovich, who had his world turned upside down when Toronto police accused him of murdering his girlfriend, Elizabeth Bain. It was summer, early June in 1990. Elizabeth vanished on her way to university in the Toronto suburb of Scarborough. Only her car was discovered with traces of blood on the back seat. To this day, Elizabeth's body has never been found. Despite police having only a circumstantial case against him and no solid physical evidence, Robert was charged with Elizabeth's murder on November 19, 1990. The years that followed would test him. It was a pretty surreal experience because, of course, right up until the day I was arrested, I kept saying to myself, and I would say to my mother, who was terrified about what was happening, you know what, it's okay because they can't find evidence for something I didn't do. And then, of course, they show up at your home one day at 7.30 and they say you're under arrest for first-degree murder. Robert spent almost eight years behind bars for a crime he did not commit. So how did police, prosecutors, and the courts get it so wrong? It's a very good example of poor investigation. James Lockyer, QC, is one of Canada's preeminent defense lawyers who's made a career out of exonerating the innocent. The police, right from the outset, suspect that Rob was the perpetrator of her disappearance and death on a what was really a half-baked theory that they were having problems. They weren't. And uh, indeed, they were very much in love. So it's a real tragedy what happened to Rob. He ended up being charged with her murder, uh, convicted of it. He took on the case once Robert had been in prison for almost seven years. Lockyer blames faulty eyewitness testimony and a clear lack of evidence for Robert's eventual conviction. Former Attorney General and Chief Justice of British Columbia, Wally Opal, says convicting someone who's innocent is a judge's worst nightmare. But often that responsibility lies in the hands of juries, who may sometimes not have the legal training required to make a life-changing decision. Opal says juries are often compelled and are more likely to believe the testimony of eyewitnesses because it's considered the gold standard of evidence. Juries or judges can make mistakes. They're human. Eyewitness identification can be faulty. The greatest injustices in our system has been done through faulty identification. Psychologists will tell you that if you take six or seven people looking at a particular event, then ask them to recall that event, you'll get six or seven different explanations, identifications as to who the perpetrator is. And we've relied far too long on a faulty identification. We're now in a position now where we're the beneficiaries of DNA evidence. And that has been a huge benefit to convicting the right people. Rob Baltovich has been in the desperate position of hearing witness testimony that was simply wrong. It was a very surreal experience. And I remember on more than one occasion just turning to my lawyers and saying to them, 
you know, all this for something that didn't even happen. It's, it's a pretty scary situation when you realize that the police can actually build a case against you, an almost entirely circumstantial case based on evidence that I would maintain they knew from the very beginning was simply wrong. Elizabeth Loftus from the University of California, Irvine, has studied the instances of wrongful conviction and the role false memories play. First of all, it's important to realize that faulty human memory, faulty eyewitness testimony, is one of the leading causes of wrongful convictions in North America. In one project, faulty eyewitness testimony contributed to over 70% of known wrongful convictions. So it's pretty important to, to study why people make mistakes and why they identify the wrong people or make other kinds of mistakes when they're recounting the details of a crime or some other event they might have witnessed. And there are lots of reasons that that happens. She adds there are a number of reasons why people's memories retain certain details and forget others. Sometimes just a long passage of time and the memory is faded. Sometimes people are exposed to some suggestive or misleading information, wrong information. Sometimes they're given a test, a lineup that isn't fair. So these are just a few of the reasons why witnesses sometimes make these kinds of serious mistakes. I think we have a false idea about our memories being like videotapes, you know, when in fact they're not, they're completely flawed. Let's go back to Katherine Campbell, the professor at the University of Ottawa, for a well-known American example of how faulty eyewitness testimony can result in a miscarriage of justice. The American case of Jennifer Thompson, she was sexually assaulted by a man who she thought was Ronald Cotton. She identified him in a lineup. She memorized the details of his face, thinking if I survive this, because he had a knife, I will, I will remember so he can pay for this. What is his voice? Does he have an accent? Does he have a scar? Just trying to pay attention to a detail that if I survived, and that was my plan, I'd be able to help the police catch him. She was 100% certain. Sat on the stand, identified him. The strongest emotion I felt was anger at the defense because I thought, how dare you? How dare you question me? How dare you try to paint me as someone who could possibly have forgotten what my rapist looked like? I mean, the one person you would never forget? How oh, dare man. you? He went to jail, he got like two life sentences and then DNA exonerated him 11 years later. And she was absolutely floored. She's like, there's no way. There's absolutely no way I know who this person was, and, but it wasn't him. Ron, if I spent every second of every minute, every hour for the rest of my life telling you how sorry I am, it wouldn't come close to how my heart feels. I'm so sorry. I don't think people intentionally make those kinds of errors. I think we have this belief that our memory is, is really solid when in fact it's not. Let's take a look at another reason innocent people can become entangled in a conviction. Would you ever confess to a crime, even if you knew you didn't do it? False confession may seem like a far-fetched concept, but it's more common than you may think. Romeo Filion was convicted of the 1967 murder of an Ottawa firefighter. 
He retracted his confession two hours later. But it didn't matter. Filion spent 31 years behind bars for a crime he had no involvement in. He had some psychiatric problems, let's say, and he might have done it for a number of reasons, but he retracted it immediately afterwards, and it didn't matter. It was out there, and I think once a, a confession is on the table and it becomes part of the evidence, it's very hard to take it back. That can happen. I mean, you know, you and I think, well, I would never do that. Well, if you had been, you know, I know another case, Christopher Bates, who signed a confession after 72 hours of being questioned by the police with no access to a toilet or food or water. The method of interviewing criminologist Catherine Campbell is describing, known as the Reed model, is designed to break the accused person down psychologically by depriving them of basic needs, such as food and water, for hours on end. The ultimate goal? Inducing a confession. And once that confession is achieved, it's very hard to walk back. Prior to going in to actually do a polygraph test, there was an officer that actually pulled me aside into another room, basically said to me, you know, look, Maria, if, if you don't give us what we need or if you don't give the officers what they're looking for, essentially, then the following morning, the newspapers would read, uh, stepmother kills stepdaughter, and then they were going to remove my children. That's Toronto woman Maria Shepard. In 1991, she was 21 years old, with two children and one on the way, when she was charged with causing the death of her three-and-a-half-year-old stepdaughter, Cassandra. I had a lot left on my shoulders, considering that I had, you know, my other children at home, one of them being a newborn. You know, I went into this interrogation with the police, and it turned into a very difficult situation, a very lengthy amount of time and hours in the interrogation room, and they just keep going at you. No matter how much you say to them, you had nothing to do with it. They're just not satisfied. They wanted a quick close to this case, and they got it. The prosecution's linchpin in the case was flawed evidence from now-disgraced pediatric forensic pathologist Dr. Charles Smith. He testified, claiming there was medical evidence Maria had physically abused her stepdaughter, contributing to her death. Those lies prompted Maria to plead guilty to manslaughter. She was sentenced to two years less a day in jail. Smith, who was the subject of a 2008 inquiry, was later stripped of his medical license. So those things happen where, you know, your, your mind starts to play tricks on you and, and, you know, okay, I just want to get this over with. And people begin sometimes to question their own memory. Maybe I, I, maybe I did it. Police interrogation methods can produce false confessions. I know that for a fact. Many people who provide a false confession have faith the judicial process will eventually prove them innocent. But often that doesn't turn out to be the case. Data from the Canadian-based Innocence Project reveals in more than 25% of cases where the individual was exonerated, the person had given police a false confession. In the next episode of Canada's Wrongfully Convicted, we'll take an in-depth look at the story of Robert Baltovich. It was a rush to judgment. It was a case of tunnel vision. There was never any real evidence. You know, in many respects, it was a legal travesty. And the story of Maria Shepard. I'm told that I'm to tell other inmates that I was there for murdering my husband. 
because if they find out that you're there for an offence on a child, you're done. Canada's Wrongfully Convicted was written and produced by Pippa Reed and Nikki Reitmeyer. For Global News, I'm John McComb. And there's more to come. That is a five-part series for Global News. You'll be hearing more about it this week. If you want to weigh in, feel free to email me, simi at cknw.com. But those are, we know a lot about, uh, we always hear a lot, read about, about some wrongfully convicted cases that get a lot of attention down in the United States. have to say, when I was reading and, and hearing about this particular series, I thought, well, this is going to be new because a lot of these cases, even Canadians would be unfamiliar with some of these names and these cases. So there's more to come this week.